Come on. Do you think that they never will will plow up the Serengeti Plain just because we like to watch elephants and wildebeest? This is the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. This week, I'm doing something I've never done before. I have a guest on that I've had on before, Dr. Doug Sammons, who is a world-renowned chemist and a fascinating, interesting guy that has heterodox takes on everything you ask him about. If you went back to that first interview with Doug, you would see a white belt trying to put together a podcast. I had one camera and one microphone that we sat in between the two of us. And on my camera, every 29 minutes, I had to lean over and try and hit the button uh, twice to stop it and start it again because it would shut off after 30 minutes of recording. And this was really distracting. And I'm trying to interview one of the world's leading biochemists. And every 29 minutes, I have to ask myself, am I going to get cut off? Is it going to shut off? And I didn't get the everything out of that interview that I knew was possible to get because I know how great it is to talk with Dr. Sammons and I felt like the first time out of the gate was a good interview. I'm proud of it from for where I was at the time, but it was nowhere near the type of information that would be valuable for you to hear. And so I've been waiting and waiting and waiting to get good enough to have Dr. Sammons back on the podcast. And something big happened uh, last week, and that is that St. Louis Bank, who is, you've probably heard me talk about them before, I'm on the board of directors for the bank, I've actually interviewed their chief credit officer, their attorney, other board members. St. Louis Bank came to me and said, we love the show. We love how you're featuring people from the St. Louis area. We love how you respect expertise. We love how you dive deep and understand what people are really all about when you give them a long chance to explain themselves. And so they asked me, is there anything we can do to support the podcast so you can do more interviews, so that your interviews can be better, so that you can drive forward the type of audience that you're looking to get? And man, I'm, I'm really humbled by that. And, and it's like an experience to have a group of people that you know are working hard to run their own business to say, we think supporting you supports our community and it supports the bank itself. So what can we do? And so they sponsored the podcast so that I could make some really serious equipment upgrades. You'll notice I don't have to lean over and start and stop the camera anymore. I also have two camera angles that I can add into the YouTube component. And I've also seriously upgraded both my computer and the software that I use to be able to process the digital files that are going through here. All of this is to say that St. Louis Bank really helped me out. And as a small business that's trying to build and grow and be doing the things that I love doing, getting out and giving public talks, putting on workshops to help people become tangibly better communicators and consulting, getting in the weeds and trying to figure out, hey, what is your communications problem and what can we do to help solve it? By St. Louis Bank supporting the podcast, they're helping me to get to my dreams and I am really grateful for it. So I wanted to make sure that you knew firsthand that they have been a big supporter of me. And if you are a small business and you uh, see a way that banking services, maybe that's helping you with payroll, maybe that's holding your deposits, maybe it's helping you get lines of credit so that way you can make some big improvements in the way that your business operates, then I suggest checking out St. Louis Bank. I am grateful for their support and I hope that you will support them if you're in the St. Louis community and 
you're in need of banking services. But I have to say for this podcast, I could not be happier that I was able to give 100% of my attention to Dr. Sammons because now that I have this new equipment, I am taking this all the way. I am going to try and focus as deeply as I can and my guest this week had a hell of a lot to say that I did not see coming. He has some really unique opinions on how quickly the rest of the world is going to upgrade their ability to grow commodity crops, rice, wheat, corn, soy. He has some pretty strong feelings about organic that I think are more balanced and more interesting and nuanced than any I've ever heard before. He has some thoughts that are really pretty heterodox about climate change, things I had never considered and now had to actually go and look up to make sure he wasn't pulling my leg about it. And uh, finally, he talks about other staple crops, other crops that we could potentially grow as human beings uh, that are right now weeds out in the world, uh, vegetation and plants that are producing some kind of fruit that we do not even expect or anticipate we could eat, but maybe someday could be a, an important part of the human diet. This was one of those conversations that pushes the very envelope of what I know and what I'm capable of asking, but I had a blast. So I hope you buckle in and love this interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. And if you are one of those people that Doug Sammons has blocked on Twitter, we are still not to the bottom of this. We do not know why there are so many of you that have been blocked on Twitter by Doug. But I did open up the very first question of the podcast with asking Doug, why did you block all these people? So buckle in, enjoy the show, and thank you so much, St. Louis Bank, for helping me put this together. Dr. Doug Sammons, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Vance. It's nice to be here. So last week, I was on Twitter just after you had agreed that you would come on, and I was excitedly telling people. And uh, Twitter actually jumped up. There was a little bit of storm that I don't think you could have seen because there was an uproar of people that said, I'd love to know more about this Doug Sammons guy, but I'm blocked by him. And uh, there were like uh, maybe four or five people that all uh, sent me screenshots saying you blocked him at some point. You know, I don't think I have blocked. I block a few people that I followed that just perpetually put up sports and ugly stuff. And I, don't, I am not into that. So I just turned it. And so the others that I like that like put their pets up all the time and other stuff, I just put less of this. Well, it, the the combination of people that put that up there, it led me to believe that there must be something off because it would be like you going out of your way to block people. Now, it doesn't I don't, make any sense. I don't block anybody. I, in fact, I'm not even sure I know how to. But uh, <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but there are some few people that just had just really weird stuff all the time, not just like once in a while. It's just it was perpetual. And I'm just not interested in that crap. So. I mean, I'm... I'm uh, super tight about what I follow on Twitter. Because to me, when you open up Twitter, you are giving 100% of the most valuable thing that you own, your attention. And if somebody's putting up stuff about their political beliefs, their opinions on things, like I just don't have time for it. So I did a couple of things to clean up my Twitter feed that were really helpful. I uh, Have you ever used muted words? 
I don't know what it is. I've tried that on a couple of them. It is fantastic. So I muted a bunch of political terms, and then all of those are just knocked off into the waste bin. I never see them, and it's great. And that means there are some people that have some political opinions that I don't want to see, but anytime they relate to any of those political topics, they're just gone. And then I also am a big fan of unfollowing people. I, 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 I don't ever mean for it to hurt anybody's feelings, but for me, it's like... Yeah, I think I've done that to a couple of people, but I'm not really sure <laughs> to tell you the truth. But I, I mean, I saw I just put less of this, but I don't know. The only couple, maybe two or three or four people I blocked were just, I mean, obscene or uh, really terrible stuff that I just didn't want. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to think. So, so that- I'm interested then that they complained to you that they would like to follow me. These are these are people that I respect quite a bit. So so I was not them. So 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 those people, I I'm not sure. I I get I get tweets from you or like Randy uh, Kerstetter I follow uh, that are not available. I don't know why they're not available. Um, The just has a gray box. This tweet's not available. Yeah, there's there's some weirdness to all of these things. And, you know, I used to have almost no humility about uh, how difficult it was to learn a new platform. I was like, you just get on there, you play with it, and then you figure it out. But I recently started trying to use Instagram. And it is as though I've stumbled into Japan and I'm trying to figure out how to do physics or something like none of it works for me the way that I think it should. People are are fast and loose on what they do. And so for me, the amount of time to learn a new platform has been humbling. I, I actually have way more sympathy for people that join a new platform than I ever used to have. I think one platform is enough for me, and I and I it might not even be what I want to do. Okay, so uh, I spend some time on it and uh, try to read the ag stuff, particularly things that are global ag food things, and send those on. Uh, but a lot of the stuff, I still get half of them or somebody's favorite sports team or other. I don't, I don't, I don't care about it. Yeah. Oh. For me, the check that I have is, did I arrive at this conclusion that I want to share with people purely because it's my opinion, right? That, you know, and that's what sports is. I, I feel strongly that's the way politics are. So I do my best not to include any of that stuff. Yeah. So um, you and I met a couple of weeks ago and we had a conversation that has rattled around in my head since we met and I have tried to explain it to a couple of my friends and I don't think I'm doing it justice. And it is the waves of technology that have impacted agriculture. And I thought that this was an interesting take um, that you had on how did we move forward in agriculture? And then where did, where do you think it's going in the future? Well, it's an interesting thing. I mean, as a, a research scientist, you know, the question is, what can you do that that they need the most, right? And so I was trained basically to identify uh, herbicides or to, to, uh, to um, design and create herbicides. And uh, after a few years and realizing I couldn't do that, uh, I mean, I could design inhibitors, but I could make them herbicides. A big difference. Meaning that they wouldn't just kill a plant. Right. So then studied natural products, which led me into biotechnology. Um, but trying, you know, as you're in it, the, the goal isn't just to do what you're told, but it's to see what's next or what should be look, you should be looking at next. During that time, 
um, was basically the end of the herbicide discovery program at Monsanto that had been very lucrative um, for almost 30 years. So how did it die? It died because none of the compounds we could discover, which were scarce, uh, could replace, had a market because glyphosate was, was cannibalizing all of the herbicide markets. And so the reason for that was it cost so much money to create a product that uh, would be on some segment of the market. And then if there was a way for glyphosate to, to be used in that market, well, it was gone overnight. I remember one year when they talked about introducing glyphosate into uh, the burned out markets for wheat in Saskatchewan, you know, and they made so much money just overnight, just decided to use it. So, And for people that don't know what that is, the burn down market would be you want wheat to move into its stage where it starts drying out so that way you can harvest it? Well, that's that's a different kind of burn down. This was to kill all the weeds before you plant. Oh, Okay. Okay, and so glyphosate wasn't specific. It would kill the wheat, but so you spray it before planting and then plant. So uh, they'd been using some other herbicides for that, and glyphosate fit nicely in the market and did a good job. And, you know, just overnight, you just make a huge amount of money. So, uh, what the, so then the question becomes obvious. So what does it take to really create a new herbicide, and is there a market, and can it compete with the generics? And so that problem actually exists today. So you have some herbicides that are uh, have a lot of resistance, but not so much resistance that they've been taken off the market. They still have market segments they're good at and work in. And so it is with glyphosate. Glyphosate basically just has a couple flaws, and those flaws happen to be big enough to create a lot of opportunity for the herbicides that got pushed out the last 15 years. And so people are reintroducing combinations. The problem is it costs a lot of money, a lot more money than glyphosate. And so where does that money have to come from? So this starts the argument of transitions of technology from one kind to another. So there are some new herbicide discovery compounds or herbicide discovery companies that want to create a new glyphosate. Well, do we need a new glyphosate? Okay. Because if you spend $100 million and 10 years investment to make a compound and somebody else in the meantime discovers how to kill Palmer amaranth specifically, glyphosate's new again. Which is the, which is the weed that's become resistant to a lot of glyphosate or to glyphosate. Right. And creates a lot of problem because it's such a terrible weed. So if that problem is solved a different way, you're just done. There is, there's no... You put in a huge it, amount of time and money in... Right. So, so the, I don't think folks have thought clearly about how to, to really reintroduce chemistry. That's one problem. Second problem is, who's going to pay for it? So, if the cost of the chemistry is, is high, then how are the guys going to buy seed? So, when, when glyphosate took over and the price of glyphosate went down price of weed control went down, farmers could spend more money on seed and other inputs and chemical and, and machinery and so on. And so um, now we want to turn the clock back and we want them all to pay more for chemistry. Well, the price of corn's not higher. The price of soybeans is not higher. But it will be soon, you say. <laughs> 
but it's not the case. So when I started at Monsanto, um, there was a guy from the USDA came and he gave us this lecture about how soybeans were becoming a big product in South America, Brazil in particular, Argentina. Uh, and and how fields were being planted that were so big, you couldn't even see the edges from a Cessna airplane, okay? And so after I visited there later, uh, I could see that it was true. I mean, we drove for six hours on a freeway, 70 miles an hour, never saw a farmhouse, and saw only soybeans, okay? Wow. All right? So uh, today, Brazil makes about an equivalent amount of soybeans as the U.S., and so we don't have a market uh, control of the market for soybeans. Well, so uh, where do you think Africa is in the development of modern ag techniques for the production of corn and soybeans and other crops that they need? My, my sense is they're pretty far behind. Well, they are, but they're catching up fast, right? Remember what happened with, with phones, right? They didn't have to put all the telephone wire in. They just went right to cell phones. Yeah, I was there right as Kenya was getting cell phones, and it was staggering. You had people that didn't have electricity running to their house, but they were more adept at doing text messages than I was at the time because they, they just leapfrogged over that technology. Right. So, so people forget about the migration from rural areas to the cities, happened in the U.S. It happens because life is easier, however terrible it is, than it is out in the, uh, in the woods and, uh, or in the desert or wherever those, those folks are. So as agriculture becomes modern and big in places that can do that, then those commodity crops will be produced and they won't need imports and they'll be making their own stuff. And uh, that's going to happen. And it's going to happen all through Africa and it's going to happen all through Southeast Asia and, and in China. You know, it's not very often that I hear somebody making the case that Africa will be able to feed itself. Is that is that the position you're putting forward? Come on. Do you think that they never will, will plow up the Serengeti Plain just because we like to watch elephants and wildebeest? No, I mean, I think if they if they could standardize and consolidate their farms, they'd do it in an instant. They wouldn't even well, blink. Those people don't want to be out there hoeing with the djembes, no, and it's, no. it's not something they want to be doing. That's right. It's not going to happen. And so, you know, I heard a, uh, a guy who was the CEO of uh, one of the ag companies talk about they sell only generics, but his point was that 600 million people are going to move to the cities in the next 10 years. And in Africa, the average distance from a village to the, the next village is going to increase to something like 50 or 100 miles. The point being that all the small towns are going to become ghost towns as people move to the cities. Oh, that makes complete sense to me. So, so then what he was pushing for was um, supermarket foods, prepackaged, how we can get people good and healthy, f excuse me, food in the cities. And the need for that because of the population increase that the cities are going to see. Um, and I think that that's what's happened historically. And there's no reason to doubt that it won't continue to happen. And meanwhile, agricultural will be taken over by large conglomerate farmers and they will grow large areas and it'll be efficiently done. And there won't be a need for imports like there has been. And the, the food will be available in those regions. How dramatically will that reshape 
the U.S. agriculture market since so much of our GDP is based on agricultural exports. Well, that's right. So let's just make sure we understand that in in China, so for my last fellow presentation, I demonstrated that while the U.S. since 1970 had gone from 30 or 40 metric tons of corn to 400, China had gone from uh, 30 or 40 metric tons of um, uh, vegetables to 450. So the average caloric intake in China, you know, if you go to the, that website um, by the Swedish guy, uh, Gapminder, you know, he's got the, the numbers there for you to look at. Uh, the calorie intake is now over, you know, starvation. I mean, China's major goal is to feed their people, and they're going to do it one way or another. They are not going to be limited by what other countries want to give them. So when we put a, an export tariff on soybeans, I mean, where are they going to get them? They're going to get them someplace else. So they're they're setting up to farm in Africa. They signed a big contract with Ukraine to bring in corn. They're not they're not going to wait for us to decide what whim we have to export to them. And so will the other countries. So U.S. ag, you know, especially after this last series of tariffs, I think has really jeopardized our position. Because once the Chinese learn how to grow their own soybeans, where else they can get corn, they will need us. I think it's always been my <clears throat> intuition is that uh, we have this land, we have soil that has, you know, really good nutrients and it's flat and we have an excellent transportation system. So our comparative advantage with growing crops was so much higher that it would always keep us in the game. But you're saying that the board is going to change so dramatically in places like Africa where they can grow themselves. You could you could make a lot more green happen on that continent or China being able to turn from not just vegetables, but doing commodity crops, uh, corn and soy. You think you think uh, how quickly does this change take place? Well, Brazil did it in, in 25 years, 30 years. To, to come up to speed to the U.S. and soybeans. And if you go to Brazil, the whole north of the Brazil hasn't changed much. It's the southern half of Brazil that's doing all this for soybeans in Argentina. So I don't know. I, don't, I, I think that there's fertile ground in all these continents that hasn't been put to that use at that scale and that efficiency. And that it, w- and that it should be and it will be. So, so then what, what will farmers grow in the Midwest? If they can't export soybeans and corn, um, then what? And so I, I think, you know, that, that without saying that it'll go away, I would just say that the commodity price is not going to ha- skyrocket, okay? It is going to stay low. And so if it stays low, and that means just barely enough, um, then where are you going to put your money as a farmer? You're going to put it, you know, if, if the weeds are killing you, taking your crop, you can't do that. The fungicides, if they kill all your crop, you lose everything overnight. Same way with insect, insect damage. So you have to take care of those things. So there's, you know, it's divided up into inputs. So there's the fertilizer and, and the chemistry for the nutrient efficiency. There's the chemistry for pest control. There's the seed price. 
And there's the machine price. And the labor price. Well, and so the labor price has gone way, way, way down because of the efficiency of the machines. Right. So which of those are you going to bring back? So the farmer's margin is already really tight. So he doesn't want to spend more money to control weeds. So if if the newest uh, self-propelled weeding machine cultivator can be done without a driver because it's all satellite camera detected and it can do a good job, a good enough job to control the weeds, can it do it at a price that's competitive with the chemistry? Some people see it as a win-win. It's uh, more, it might be more reliable, maybe not if you have a wet field and it's muddy and it gets stuck. Um, but uh, uh, it would be less chemistry in the system, so that might be, from some people's point of view, a good thing. Um, and are you imagining this mechanized weeding system to be pulled behind by a giant tractor? Or are they going to be no, they'll little be self-propelled. drones? Self-propelled. Now, the drone thing, I think that's bogus. I think um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. It's cool technology. It's kind of neat. It's kind of flashy. Pretty pictures. Well, my, my uh, son-in-law has some of these drones, and they do those things. And, um, you know, he does jobs. And he tells me that, you know, you can only put that drone up for a certain amount of time, half an hour, hour max. And then you have to change batteries. And so the conversation was about, well, you have to recharge the battery or you have to have another one. Well, so you just do that, right? Well, you can only use the battery so many times. How much are they? They're like 200 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally see your point. And I think why fight gravity? You don't need a flying uh, tractor. You what you need is something that is close to the ground that's going to be able to both pick up weeds, detect fungus and hopefully be able to help with insects and do spot treatments of chemistry and fertilizer and stuff. So one machine can do all these things if it can move, if the ground's not too muddy and it can't find a way to get through get everywhere but you have that problem regardless of well and maybe we'll stop uh, farming the low spots and put those into something else that doesn't need it so there are lots of workarounds for it uh, but the question is will it ever be cheap enough to replace the price of chemistry or even decrease the price so the farmers can have put, put the money on more fertilizer or more. So, so keep in mind the, the prospects for increasing for uh, unit activity or unit uh, fertility is production is pretty good. The record for soybean production is over 170 bushels per acre. The average in the U.S. is in the around 40 bushels per acre. So. There's a lot of room for improvement. So where is that improvement? Is it just in fertilizer, soil tilth, or is it in some of it's in genetics, some of it's in weather, and so on? For corn, um, it's upwards to 540 bushels per acre. And and so what's interesting about that, I studied that some for a lecture last year, and some few guys, two or three guys, were over 500. Another group of guys, four, five, ten, were four thirty. So the question was, what was the difference? That hundred bushel difference. What was that difference? And then after those ten or fifteen guys, 
is another group of hundreds of guys at 230, 250, 270. So that what that says is that a very high-efficiency farmer with does everything right can get to 300, okay, and into that range. you got to do something special to get over 400, and you have to have everything right at five. So, so why not take it to 300 when the country average is already uh, 170? It'd be a huge bump. If Just you double. Yeah, that's yeah right. right, right, right. So uh, that's not necessarily more space or anything. It's, uh, it's, it's there. So that's the upside. So what, what are the, which of these tools is going to get us to that upside? Well, the, pri- the price for the, um, is not the driver. I mean, it's still just a commodity. So, and, the, and the storage bins are still on the full side. So we don't need twice as much. If all the guys went out and made 300 bushels, we wouldn't know what to do with it. And the price would crash. Right? So I don't know. As, as technology waves of technology go forward, what the rest of the world is doing is going to impact our overall commodity price and our opportunity. And then our own improvements and our own competition and efficiency for production are going to affect the number of farmers that are there. You're saying something that I would imagine if I were a farmer toughing it out right now, imagining that we're going to get to six, seven, eight dollar corn, that uh, that's really taking the wind out of their sails at this point. Right? Well, I hope they get all of it they can get. Okay, personally, um, I think they work way too hard for too little, but. Um, you, you know, when there's a surplus, it's a commodity market. Okay, this is not a specialty market, and it goes like commodity markets, and they're very predictable. And so, if there's excess, then the price goes down. So, what do you think of the farmer that is struggling to to make um, to make money in a commodity based system? That now decides one way that I can increase the value of my land, or at least the product coming off my land, is to get it certified organic and start selling organic. Well, I, I think there's a definitely an organic niche for food, and it's a it's because people are willing to pay more money, and so it's a it's an obvious market trend to do it. So, if it's a better way to make money for the farm, then they should consider what they need to do to do it. I'm in favor of organic farmers um, who do it right and and take on the challenge and are doing what's necessary to do it. The problems that I have are that some of the guys say, well, our organic food is healthier. Okay, it's not healthier. And in fact, there could be evidence that it's less healthy because of the bacterial and fungal infections and the toxins they have, not to speak of uh, the organic fertilizers, manures, and stuff contaminate with bacteria and systems. So if it's not washed and it's not clean, it could spawn more problems. So the healthier thing is a problem for me. It's it's good food, and if it's done right, it should be in the market, and it's it's a good thing that they get paid more for it. But the fact is, uh, less drugs, less pesticide in it, that's not true either. There are a number of compounds that um, organic guys have okayed to use that are terribly toxic materials because they're natural. They're allowed to use them. 
And some of them, like copper sulfate, are terribly toxic to the environment, and they're allowed to use. So the idea that, that there's no pesticides or no chemical control whatsoever is wrong, too. So it's a lie. And so I disagree with that, you know, um, not that they that they need to do it, just that they assert, you know, and they're advertising that it's safe and clean. So it's I don't have a problem with them doing the things they need to do to have a good crop. I have a problem with the the uh, misguided definition of it, what it is when it's not that. My biggest problem with it is is a matter of integrity, and I don't see a way around it. And that is one of the big reasons that retailers can charge more for it is that people have been made to feel like the organic is either pesticide free or it's somehow, like you said, healthier and more nutritional. And so the people that are making more money off of that are making more money as a result of marketing that has been done to people that now become afraid of the traditional food or the conventionally grown food. Um, and, and also like by, by taking those margins, by making more money, you're giving up part of your margins to a marketing campaign that continues that cycle. And you could say, well, I'm not doing that, but there's no other situation that we sit and let people say, you can profit off of somebody else tell, telling lies about about your thing and still say that's okay. I'm not facing losing my farm. I don't have any of those pressures on me. But when I see it, it's hard for me to square that. I, I really struggle with saying that that's not a matter of integrity. Well, I don't know. And, and so then there's a third part, and that's the labor. So you can only spend so much money to produce these crops. And if you're not going to use chemistry to control the, the diseases – and the insects and the weeds, then you have to use fingers. And my daughter went to live on an organic farm. Uh, <laughs> Did she really? And, um, you know, she worked for three months. She lived in a barn over a chicken coop. They had an outside latrine and an outside shower. Okay. So, yes, the food was produced because they went through it and they picked everything and hoed everything and did all the work by hand for uh, like $9 an hour. And they worked ferociously long hours, dragged it all into Chevy Chase Farmer's Market and sold it for $5 a pound for tomatoes, making thousands of dollars for the farmer. So who could sustain that? Well, he figured out a way to sustain it by inviting college students to, to experience the organic farm system. So students were you know, perpetually signing up to come there to work for a month to find out what it was like. Okay. So he was, he had an itinerant group that were dedicated to his cause that he could pay a substandard labor to who were willing to live in substandard living conditions to provide a product that he was going to make money on. Now, so, so where did the integrity go there? You know, and so I complained to my daughter that um this this wasn't sustainable that the workers lives were were being taken advantage of and she said well there was a farmer next door who tried to build a dormitory and so forth for his workers to live in but he went bankrupt because he couldn't couldn't afford to to provide those facilities so everywhere in this organic market um, if you're not going to use modern chemical ag 
then then where what are you using instead? You could use plastic, so that that's a good alternative, but it's not so good for the environment. So there's a kind of a contradiction there. Meaning that you cover over all of the ground that isn't where the plant is coming right, up that's got right. the crop, and then the plant the weeds underneath just can't grow. You could use mulch. So what happens to the mulch, and why do you replace it? Well, because it's it's mineralized to CO2. So we're all trying to conserve CO2. So you can shade out the weeds by putting down mulch. But what about um, the other diseases, fungal, fungal diseases and insects? Um, they have to be picked off, you know, or, or something. So I, I just think it's a little disingenuous that to, to, for an organic farmer, even if he's doing it right, um, you know, to the margins, you know, I guess the large scale guys who are trying to do it right have figured out how to manage the labor and the growing conditions um, so that they can make a profit at the higher price. And that, and that should be good if they can. But I'm, I'm afraid there's too much slave labor or worse. And um, too worse much, than slave labor. I think people who are um, who can't get free of it. You know, so this is your only option and you have to work hard and you get some meager amount of money and you can't not even enough to get away from it. You know? Yeah. I one time had a chance to go down to Yuma, Arizona, where that's right on the border and, and about 80% of the salad vegetables that we eat in the United States from February through, I think, April or May comes from that area. And I saw in the morning, we went to the border crossing where they have Mexican um, citizens come across the border with papers and then they go to their work sites and they work. And I was like, this would be terrible. That would be really awful work. And I think it would be. It would be really tough. But we got to talk with the workers there and they're like, this is so much better to have your papers and be able to come across the border and work here is a hundred times better than working in a farm in Mexico. Well, that's right. And so so it seems like a good thing, but it's still not fair. I mean, they should still pay a fair wage, not a Mexican wage. That's just lying and cheating and stealing in a different way at someone else's expense. And those people work terribly hard. Um, I yeah, bent over uh, cutting uh, lettuce was just an, an insane I don't think thing. most of Americans could understand even what it's like to work one day as a migrant worker. I think an hour. Like, and that that's not me being uh, hyperbolic. When I was watching them bend over and cut the lettuce, it, it struck me that just the very act of doing that would be harder than any CrossFit workout that most people do. Like, that's no joke. Well, and, and so they work very, very hard. And so you're right. And so they, uh, it's worse in northern Mexico where farms are growing <clears throat> organic foods that they ship to California for a high price and the workers are treated worse. So, so it's hard for me to, to come to terms with that. I feel, I feel, um, uh, I want to be supportive. I go to the grocery store for this weekend. I bought a bunch of salad, mixed green salad says organic. So it's probably produced in a large scale greenhouse, like highly controlled condition, probably highly mechanized. Uh, washed several times and then cleaned up and packaged all automatically. So somebody has made a huge investment in equipment uh, to provide that, I suspect. And, um, and that's just a, a miracle of ag, the way they do that. 
you know, but if those greenhouses get a, get some kind of a, a fungus infection and they can lose a, a lot of the crop pretty quickly, you know, the whole process of sterilizing it and recleaning it and, and maintaining it again becomes extremely difficult. What is your prediction on, you know, there's been this big movement towards uh, in-house uh, greenhouses and, and all sorts of greens being built in warehouses in Brooklyn and this kind of movement indoors. It costs a lot of money. I mean, these growing conditions, green, the cost of running a greenhouse is not cheap. So you say, well, you use solar energy. Well, that's all right on a hot day, but what about in the wintertime? It takes, it, it can be done, but it takes a, a significant amount of technology to harness that energy and condense it to use for those growing conditions. Now, you can grow cold weather vegetables for sure, and so you don't have to have high temperatures, but you still have to worry about all the disease issues. I mean, one of the problems that people have in the field in India, right now they're burning the wheat fields off because burning the stubble is a major way of controlling the fungal diseases for the next crop. If you don't, you just leave the stubble there and plant into it, then your chances of losing your crop to disease are very good. So you need to spray a fungicide if you don't. So you can't, you can't have it both ways. If you're going to grow anything over and over and over again in the same space, it's eventually going to get infected. And then get, keep those infections out is very hard to do. So in your in Doug's future world, you are not imagining that most of our food will be produced in, in warehouses and, and giant greenhouses just outside of the city? I don't think so. I think that, I mean, as people, those places are productive because they found a market niche or a way to be competitive price-wise, okay? As people solve other problems, how to prevent disease and grow crops in the field or in other parts of the world, and transportation becomes a limiting price, then that'll be harder for them to compete. So I, I think that not all the problems in ag have been solved. There certainly are lots of problems to solve, and some of them are these diseases and as people get a better feel for how to control them in the same area, in the same over and over and over again, then I think that'll be a big giant step forward. You know, when you talk about diseases for plants, I think most people don't have a sense for it. I now can look back with a sense of embarrassment of right before I started working for Monsanto, I went up to visit my brother who keeps cows. He, he raises grass-fed cattle and next to a cornfield. And I was looking at some of the corn and was like, oh, that doesn't look very good. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's sick. And I, I, it had never crossed my mind that plants could get sick or have some sort of disease. So for anybody to have a strong sense of like, what is the actual danger of a rust coming through and, and annihilating crops? It's, it's, it's not even on their radar. They don't know to be afraid of it. How, how, how real is that? As well, possibly? it's real. I mean, it, the biggest most recent example, not that there are others I'm not aware of, is the the failure of the wheat crop in Russia. And I think it was 2012. Uh, there was a huge uh, area where wheat was destroyed by disease and no harvest. So it created um, a change in the markets for the price of wheat and rice and is thought to be one of the major implicating factors for the Arab Spring Revolution. 
the people fighting tooth and nail in the markets in the in northern Africa and Asia uh, because the price of rice changed by a penny. Okay, there are are a billion people who are dependent on that on the supply of some of these grains, and when there's a, a major change, it affects a huge number of people. So when when we get ourselves limited to corn, soy, wheat, rice as the major grains, and something major happens to one of them, like God forbid the southern uh, uh, corn blight. In the, in the United States in the 70s, would just wiped out the corn. What is a corn blight? Describe it for people. It's a, that don't... It's a disease that is very contagious and is easily moved and um, and kills them. So uh, they plants desiccate and and die prematurely. So uh, diseases like that. They, I mean, the potato famine is famous, right? I mean, potatoes were a new world crop. They were brought to to Europe, and uh, the the farmers and and Ireland and, and the UK grow potatoes to live on, which wasn't it was a sole source food wasn't a great thing for them, but had a market they could grow them that grew well, and then they got Phytophthora, and they and then they late blight and they died. Wasn't one of the big challenges there? So the potato originates in Peru. There's a huge amount of genetic diversity there of all these different types of potatoes. They could be purple or orange or all kinds of things. I've seen them. But the potatoes that were in Ireland were the one particular type of potato. Well, that's one argument, but... But, but, the but reality let me extend is, it out for somebody that hasn't heard that, that this would be one type of potato that you've made clones of thousands, hundreds well, of thousands of clones, well, well, and then they were vulnerable to a, to a disease. Yeah, that's right. And so that same problem is what caused the corn blight and uh, the southern uh, yellow corn blight, I think it was called. Um, but and, and other famines that occurred were rustas was when you have too much one gen- set of genetics either from cloning or something. So that's right. And so there are some breeding strategies around that, and guys are working furiously to do that around the world and making rust-resistant wheat and so on. So, yeah, people are at an active area of research in agriculture because of that problem. That's right. Uh, But the consequences are still there when they happen, and they can be biblical-scale famines. And, and so when we limit the total number of crops we grow that we depend on, on a large scale, then we, I think we, we are at more risk of a, of a, a major famine. Can you imagine a world where there's a different commodity other than soy, corn, rice, and wheat? Well, I think, yeah, I do. And I think that that quinoa, you know, which is a crop from South America, should be a commodity down there. And so if some other grain sorghum fails in the United States, well, it's not a big deal because there's surplus quinoa from South America. So I think, I think that every country should be developed agriculturally to maximize production of the crops that grow well in their geographies, that their cultures have adopted and are used to. And in this way, fewer people will be at risk if there's a failure of any particular one segment. I was at a, uh, speaking of quinoa, I was at this uh, gigantic baking conference in Las Vegas a few months ago, 
And there were some guys from Canada that were saying, we are the same latitude um, uh, away from the sun, I think that Bolivia is, and therefore we figured out the type of strain of quinoa. And so they're they're going for it. They're trying to start raising quinoa in, uh, in Canada. Which... Well, it's a combination of latitude and altitude. And so there are other places that are different latitudes but have higher altitudes that can do it. So that's that's just there's two variables there. And you were describing the big problems that you think agriculture has to face. So we talked about blight and and types of diseases. What are the other big problems? Storage. I mean, if you go into um, Africa today, into Congo or one of the West African countries that desperately needs, you know, a, a vibrant corn crop. And you grow 100 bushel corn, which is still not max, because their average is about 30 today. Oh, man. Okay. They don't have the infrastructure to deal with it. Okay. The insects, storage insects will decimate it. They don't have silos or bins to put it in. They don't have trucks to haul it away to sell it. There's not a market waiting to buy it. The whole infrastructure of the production is not there. So overnight successes in, in any of these areas uh, would be a difficult problem uh, at first. But as soon as there is a surplus, then there's lots of jobs and opportunities for lots of people to create a, 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 a business, a large business. It's got to be a function of more than just a lack of capital, right? People want to build grain elevators there or ways to dry it, but it's got to be that they have trouble with their government and infrastructure roads to get get places, get, to get the grain where they've got to get it to go. And- well, you know, there's always the greedy person argument that someone, these people are suppressed because somebody else is being greedy. But every, all of those people want the very best for themselves and their families. And if they can take a little loan and they can work harder and make it work, they will. And the guy who's even trying to is a tick on their back makes more money. So, so it's not like the buck has to stop any particular place. It's just make it's make bucks. So um, I think that those folks get that, and um, and the ones that are hardworking will do it, and the ones that aren't will go to the city, and the ones that stay will be bigger farms. So I, I think it'll go in the natural way that that people do it. Uh, have become successful. Hard work usually wears wins out. Now, to changing subjects, but if you if we're talking about the continent of Africa and how much solar power hits that, there was a time when people were talking about the ability to grow a form of petroleum using something like an algae, where where you would have algae in these literally thin vats, and they would be hit with enough sunlight that they would produce an oil that you could then turn into something that you could make a car, you know, an internal combustion engine. What, you know, what happened with that? Why didn't that work? I don't know. I think in the end, all these ideas are uh, just not very well thought out. I think, first of all, I believe that the petroleum products from the earth are God's, the universe gift to the earth. And I, I don't understand why people hate it so much. What they should hate is that gasoline is is 
burns at only 22% efficiency. Okay, that's worth hating. We should be getting 85, 90% of the efficiency out of that burning, okay? Um, and so it is with all the petroleum products. They are a gift, and we waste it. And at, at the, being simple about uh, it's easy to throw away and it's not recycled or it's not reused, it's just awful. Um, to grow something to replace that is ludicrous. We should be growing food to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves and, and do those things. Um, and find better ways to capture energy from the sun to replace the petroleum products. You know, think about it. You know, I saw driving in here that uh, neighbors have all put their leaves in the gutter. There was a time when people would burn those. So, so what happens when you burn a tree's leaves? You burn some small percentage of the sun's energy that they captured that year and the, the carbon that was captured and made into a leaf is released back. So it was there, it was taken, and it's back. So it's a cycle. Uh, the heat is the heat that would have been from the sun but was made into chemical energy. So it's all equal. So that's a balanced I've equation. I've never thought about it like that. All right, so what happens if you burn the tree, the wood? Well, wait a minute, that's... 50 years worth of sun energy. So that was stored like a like battery. And now you've shorted the battery out and you've released all that heat <laughs> that the tree captured from the sun as chemical energy for over 50 years. So in a few minutes, all that energy is released. Now that's not quite in the equation. The CO2 was taken from the atmosphere, all right, and it goes back. But the heat was was uh, taken out of the system and stored and over then, a long then, period of time and then, and then, then released immediately. Same. And so then how much energy is there in a, a chunk of coal? I mean, millions of years ago, the energy was saved and stored. The carbon was there originally and the carbon goes back. But, but the heat is sun energy from time a long time ago and now it's into the system so uh, you could you could get worried that there's way too much heat being dumped into the system but you have to keep in mind that enough sunlight falls on the earth to be equal to all of man's industry in a year so sunlight for an hour is equal to all of man's industry globally for a year. Okay? Wow. So what's wrong with that sun energy? Well, it's just too dilute. We don't know. We're not very good at concentrating it and using it for our purpose. Or we're not willing to. So, so the, the amount of energy we release from ancient stored energy i'm not sure how it fits into the equation but certainly if you have a terrarium and the earth is a terrarium it's in a vacuum sealed jar the heat can't get away unless it's by light okay and um and so what does it do your your terrarium if you close the lid gets water all over it right and so it, and so the water cycle runs faster and that 
um, changes the way the heat is moved in the system. So how concerned are you about the, you know, the, this seems to go to the obvious place of global warming or climate change. Is that something that keeps you up at night as far as concerns? No, I mean, okay, so uh, the earth has been warmer and recently. So the, the be- best evidence for this are these um, dehydrated trees on the above the tree line in Glacier National Park. So you go there, you look it up, and say, you know, dead trees and glacier on the ridges, 2,000 feet above the tree line are dead trees. So how did they get there? Well, they carbon dated them 780, 800 years ago. These trees were growing there. That's the not cl- that long ago. And the climate changed, and they died. Now, the, what happened to the trees in between? Well, they rotted. But the ones up on the top of the ridge, it's too dry because of the wind. And so the fungi weren't able to destroy them. So as little as 800 years ago, it was substantially warmer than it is now. Okay? So you can look up all the different degrees and so forth. And you can look up this notion about tree lines and different altitudes around the world. But it's true. So, so the question isn't that the world is warming. It certainly seems to be warmer. People are measuring it as warmer. And, and we don't really know what the cause is. I'm not sure that we should take all the credit. I mean, uh, geophysically, um, the planet, its volcanic eruptions and all the other things that go on affect the Earth's temperature. So I'm not sure we should take too much credit. But um, but what we need to do is adapt, and we're pretty good at that, and we should be focusing our energy on that. And one of the adaptions that we haven't taken on is the pollution that we've caused to the larger part of the earth. So the, all the trash that's been dumped in the oceans and all the erosion, you know, all of those things are things we should be focused on fixing. And uh, I think we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, be, be all right. There'll be more severe weather. We'll have to adapt to build our houses differently instead of out of uh, drywall. We may have to use something sturdier. But um, wow, that's the first time I've heard somebody say that. That uh, one of the one of the solutions to going forward is to build your house out of something sturdier than well, drywall. Well, in, in Florida, they do. I mean, they build cinder block yeah, cinder houses block and they yeah. have hurricane tied down roofs. And they survive them just fine when right. they do. Yeah. And so the terrible, terrible hurricane in the Bahamas devastated everything. But if you look at the video very, very closely, you see selected houses that are fine. Well, you know, I suppose there were some wealthy people there that had just put more energy and effort into building a sturdy house. And that survived it. Yeah, there's a huge difference between the houses built in the late 70s and and the early 80s. And there must have been one hell of a hurricane that went through because the ones now built 80s and beyond, they're pretty solid when you go down there after a hurricane. Right. So I think, you know, this is a combination of economics and a people's ability to do what they can do to have what they want and what's possible. So I, I, I think a lot of that can be worked out. Um, and, and for the better, but in the meantime, there'll be some suffering. 
Speaking about in the meantime, you know, when you and I last saw each other, you were still getting a little bit used to retirement, but now you've been in it for six more months than, than when I saw you before. What are you doing with your time? How, how does an agile mind well, like yours keep occupied? <laughs> I don't know. I do review a few papers and, um, and I enjoy that. Uh, this weekend I was fishing. And I don't think I've learned anything about fishing. I mean, how can you go fish all day long for two days and catch one fish? (laughs) You better enjoy your company. So we talk about all this high technology, (laughs) and I can't figure out what it takes to get a fish to... (laughs) And I have spent quite a lot of money on trying to figure that out. So the weekend before, I was uh, taking a woodworking class on uh, using a lathe, and I enjoy my woodworking classes. And um, then with the family in the garden and taking care of some aged parents. So you, you're you doing woodworking. Was that a skill you had before you get, you retired? Uh, it's something I've always wanted to do. So I've been... Uh, Seems I, like a good old man kind of get into the shop and well, get away. <laughs> like, I, re- I remodeled. I mean, my dad and I built a house like this stone house you have next door. Mm-hmm. We built when I was a kid and um, I remodeled a, an old farmhouse and I've built my current house with a contractor. So I'm, I can do those kind of things, but making fine furniture uh, is a little bit, takes a little bit more patience and skill. So I'm working on that. It's kind of a meditation actually. Yeah. <laughs> to do those things that correctly. And um, it's, it's good for my mental health, I think. But it's also challenging, especially if your eyes starting to not be quite as uh, well. It's hard to see. I talk about this quite a bit on the podcast. Is this concept of the flow state, which is right when you're on the edge between what you're capable of and just taking a small step further into what you you're really pushing the boundaries of what you're capable of, and it's in that moment that time kind of. You know, floats away. You you kind of forget where you're at and what you're doing because you're so focused on it that that you you get into a flow state. Would you say that is woodworking for you? Well, that was true for a lot of things that I did. I mean, when I my wife complains that that men just get too focused. That's why they're so successful. <laughs> that's, you get too focused. I don't think that's everybody's problem. But I think yeah, when I'm doing something I enjoy like that, time disappears. But um, you know, learning a new skill is uh, a roller coaster thing. You practice, you know what's supposed to happen, and you can't do it, and you practice more tenaciously, and you see some minor improvements, and then all of a sudden you do it, and it's like, ah, I can do it. So then you go to do it again, and you can't do it. So it's very frustrating because to be able to have the high level of skill continuously reliably is the, the, the measure of a real, uh, real uh, skillful person, I think. Well, you and I have talked about this before because you did judo, but I'm just learning jujitsu. And you'll have this experience where you go in and you're able to land a move five, six, seven times on the guys and you come home and you're so excited. And so you go back to another class because you think, well, why not? It's so fun. I can just land all these moves and you can't land a single thing. And it is as though you were there on day one. Right. And and it, it really does 
the more that you are able to be humble about the skills that you actually possess, the less that you have to go endure the suffering of being humbled. And I think that that's something that you don't get just by going to school or just by growing up. Like you've got to put yourself in a situation where you're trying to learn a new skill and, and you have the experience of being humbled enough times that it keeps you, it, it keeps you, uh, yeah, grounded in a way that, uh, that that other things don't. That's right. So this class, the school that I go to, has some of the world's most famous woodworking artists as teachers. And they seem to be a very wholesome, normal kind of group of people down to earth. And then you see the work they've done. It's just, I feel about this big. <laughs> I'm sure there are some chemists right now that are like, welcome to my world, Dr. Simmons. <laughs> So um, another thing that you do that I find to be infinitely curious, but I don't have any interest in doing, is uh, keeping bees. Well, to be fair, my wife keeps bees, and she does keep them as opposed to losing them, (laughs) which a lot of beekeepers who try to do haven't done. Uh, But I help. I'm support staff. Uh, in every way I can do, and she's she's got about forty hives this year, and she's forty got, hives. Yeah, my son is getting into beekeeping too, and he's got quite a few hives too. So it's a it's a pretty busy these days. Raising bees is pretty takes quite a lot of commitment. It's not a once and done thing. It's um, why do you say that these days? Did it used to be? Yeah, it did used to be. Uh, you could keep bees when we started um, in the early 80s. Uh, they didn't need so much care. I mean, you set them up for the, for the spring and made sure they were had what they needed and uh, reorganized the hive a little bit and um, came back in June, harvest the honey, and then come back in the fall, set them up for the winter. You know, and so, you know, four or five visits a year and you were good. These days, um, it's just not that. You're lucky. They have to be seen monthly for sure. And uh, and in the spring and parts of the winter, um, almost weekly or every two weeks. You have to check on them, make sure they're not uh, need something in particular. I mean, that sounds like a de-evolution or something. That sounds like they're getting weaker. Yeah, they are. So there's a combination of diseases that they seem to not be able to shake. So they're not as fit going into the winter as they were because the mites they endured in the fall and this summer. And uh, because they're not as healthy going into the winter, their tolerance for cold and uh, things are a little less. And so the hive can go down. And uh, we've noticed uh, for the first time, last couple, three years now, we've been feeding the bees in the wintertime, which we never did before. And it seems like the bees, the hive, you know, they cluster, they, insects cluster. Now, you know, keep in mind that what a honeybee does to survive the winter is totally unique in the insect world. I mean, they stay alive at something on the order of 70, 80, 90 degrees Fahrenheit in the hive that's outside without insulation by using chemical energy to create heat. And so that, that chemical energy comes from the, the sugar, honey. And we found that the cluster has a difficult time moving to the sugar or the honey that they've stored. And that we have to 
make it, take it, bring it to them, put it closer to them and to ensure that they'll get it and will survive it. And we never had to do that before. So I don't know if it's just because they're weaker. Um, is the fitness what? challenge, is that because there's more beehives than there used to be? Is it that we're carrying more bees than, than we used to and therefore more weak bees get through the system or like it seems to me to be baffling that you could think that just in your wife's lifetime of caring for bees that they'd get weaker it seems seems almost impossible they've they've had a couple epidemics of diseases i mean when we started there were not varroa mites in our hives and so we lost all of our hives seven of them uh, to varroa about 1986 seven or so uh, you know, we just put them to sleep in the fall and we went up in March to check on them and they were all dead. It was a real bummer and we had to restart. And um, and so we've ne- we've had mites, been fighting mites every year since that and constantly and uh, different remedies. And so treating for mites chemically is, uh, you know, you can't collect honey if you're doing that. So you have to treat, take the chemistry out. Then you can let them make honey, but now the mites grow. And so there's this give and take in managing it so that the bees are in good condition by the end of the year. It's difficult. and It can't be done just casually. It strikes me that bees are like keeping livestock, but it's not like keeping a cow. Certainly not like having a pet like a cat or a dog where you can look and say, oh, that's cute. But people have a really strong connection with their bees. What do you think is the driving force there? I don't know. That's interesting. I, 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 having raised animals uh, and our bees, we're attached to our bees in part because it's a possession that you've worked hard for, like a flower. You know, if you grew something and you were expecting it to bloom and, it, you know, somebody came along and cut the bud like your local deer – um, you're not happy, right? Yeah, I grew tomatoes this year. I grew Klee tomatoes. And uh, and there was something about uh, giving them away that was, I mean, on the one hand, I loved it. It's fun to give them away. But then you're like, will you really appreciate just how fantastic this tomato really is? <laughs> well, I think so. there's a possession thing there and accomplishment. So it's a measure of success. And so when the bees fail, you failed, right? So it's you haven't done something right. So I think that kind of goes together. But, you know, honeybees are – people like honeybees because they're somehow associated with purity and um, uh, goodness uh, as, as pure as honey, you know, as this, this oh, thing. Oh, yeah, sure. It's kind of a organic, pure thing. Um Every pesticide in the United States is tested against honeybees. It's probably one of the most tested organisms on the planet. Um, everything is tested to see if it's safe for honeybees because people like honeybees. They're pollinators. They're important. They pollinate quite a lot of our, our food. And so Jerry Hayes used to show these plates of food with and without honeybees. You know, it makes a big difference. Um, but for us, I mean, they... The pollination, I don't know. They do the the local area, but not. I mean, I do my garden some, but not. So speaking of pollinators, 
What do you think of the tremendous efforts that are going into protecting monarch butterflies, which are, are said to be all good. pollinators? And, why yeah. not? I mean, why not? Um, I'm not sure it'll be successful. But uh, Well, you're a chemist that worked pretty hard to find chemistry that would knock out milkweed, and now we're going and replanting it. Well, some people are. I mean, there are large areas that aren't in agriculture that, you know, monarchs can go to. Um, and fence rows have still have milkweeds. I have a lot of milkweeds in my garden. The damn things take over. You know, they have a rhizomatous mass. And so you let one milkweed grow here today, and next year you'll have 10 of them all through there. What does that mean, a rhizomatous mass? It's got a root that goes horizontally and then sends up shoots. Oh, so you get a patch of milkweed going, you're going to have a hard time taking it out. Yeah. I mean, they're not a hard plant. Like when you were, when I was walking beans, you'd go out with like a hook and you'd go cut them and they were easy. That's an annual one. But once it goes through the winter and it comes back next year, it's going to be more than one. Yeah. Okay. And they'll make seed. So, uh, in my garden, they ruined my iris bed. I have to figure out how to get them out of there. But, um, but yeah, I, I think we plant milkweeds in our little prairie, but I think anything we can do to save the monarch, but you know, it, the monarch should be, um, symbol for a lot of insects that are, that are, whose lifestyles are not congruent with ours, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, there is some, there's an argument on the net that, that a lot of insects, populations have decreased substantially and the impact of that is that there's a whole cascade of of animals and so on that depended on those insects that are going to be affected so it's not just pollination it's uh, the bats that feed on them and the or the birds the flycatchers that feed on them and who feeds on them and so on so there's lots of insects insect populations are down are you worried about them? I think some of them, yeah. Some of them are very specialized. You want chocolate? There's a particular fly that pollinates chocolate flowers, cacao, and uh, it's not doing very well. And so then somebody's going to have to pollinate them by hand if they can, but it's a very difficult uh, process. So speaking of endangered plants, uh, I think you and I have spoken before about um, that all the bananas that we eat now are are genetic clones. They're they're the ones that were the bananas that survived the giant blight that knocked out all the bananas in Central America. I don't think that was me, but it's true. Yeah. So I heard that this that there is a blight that has now made it to South America that may wipe out the bananas. What do you know about this? I don't know much about it. so I can't really speak to it. I've seen that. Um, I don't know. I know that when I was in Peru, uh, uh, we were served a meal that had bananas. And there was a nice, thick, big banana that was served that had pink flesh that was delectable. It's one of the best bananas I've ever had anywhere. And I want to buy them here, but they're not available. So I know there are a lot of varieties of bananas. So I don't know if they're all affected or just the ones on the plantations. I know in Africa, uh, they've made um, some kind of a hybrid banana that's like four times bigger and better than anything, the, the, the uh, banana trees. 
and they get very much larger harvests from, and they're trying to get that growing on all the plantations. But otherwise, I don't know much about it. Yeah, me neither. I just know that it was there and that that, uh, for a long time, I'd always heard that bananas uh, may go extinct or there's always a blight that could come and now apparently the blight is there I'll, I'll look into it more well it's and it's not just a casual food for us for some people it's a sustenance and so it's not good whatever it is yeah and i mean i think that that concept of blights are is like we were saying before people don't really know that diseases can wipe entire entire fields out entire crops that and and they may not come back or at least the versions that you had before and never and maybe never again the way you had it what do you think of uh like the the seed banks that are that are going on like this i can never remember how to say it. it's the the one up in uh finland or the, up in the arctic circle where they try and capture all the seeds yeah, and- i think it's great i think that that's significantly more effort should be put into it um and I think that there should be institutes that study the genetic properties and attributes of those plants uh, that we haven't been able to take advantage of. So, you know, some people who believe in New Age crops talk about how the ones we have today were selected by, you know, women 10,000 years ago trying to make a living and kept the seeds, and, and so those became the crops we have when there are so many other plants that could have been selected that we could improve. So I would want to see us use biotechnology to improve the attributes for cropping for a lot of plants and diversify the system. Plants that we don't think of as edible or we don't think of Yeah, as- if you saw a primitive soybean plant, you would be aghast how different it is from – the soybeans we grow today. Yeah, I've never seen that. I've seen teosinte. It's kind of a viney corn. little plant that grows on the ground. And teosinte and corn's the same way. But th- I don't know why we think that other plants wouldn't couldn't be modified in that way to a great advantage. Yeah, and, and I mean, really, when you look at the original bananas or you look at carrots, I mean, to, to look at what a carrot came from, it looks like it's just a regular root. Somebody must have just been gnawing on it until they figured out, like, oh, well, we could produce these and make them a lot bigger and a lot better. Yeah. So I think there's lots of opportunity, and we don't do enough of it. Too much of what's focused on are the current commodities and markets and business plans. Uh, when for a long-term future, in the context of global warming, we should be learning everything we can about all those plants that are in those seed banks. What do you think it takes to make that happen? I mean, I financial think incentive. A, I think it takes, uh, well, I don't know. It's it, it's hard to say, but I would say if the government has a USDA, should the U, UN have a global agricultural thing? And so that all the world contributes money instead of just for peacekeeping, but for research on ag. And there are institutes that are global, but it should be done uh, on a larger scale more cohesively. So uh, when you you were talking about focus and you said, you know, what should we be focusing on? You have, is it six kids? Seven. Seven kids. What, what have you been telling them all along they should focus on as they get ready to go into adulthood? Well, that's a big question. Uh, they all have particular and special uh, goals, and so the advice wouldn't be the same. But I think working hard is one of them, and being honest and having a high level of integrity 
uh, are basic things. Um, and I, th so I think we've got that. <laughs> well, good. Yeah. So. That's a great thing for a father to be able to say. Yeah. Well, Doug, I am so grateful that you were willing to stop by after your fishing trip and, uh, and come by. You were my first guest that I've had back on the podcast, but you're, uh, one of my favorite people to talk with. So I'm so grateful you were willing to stop by and chat. Well, thanks very much, Vance. And I'm glad to see things are going well for you. Keep up the good work. Thanks. We'll see you again. Yep. Well, that's going to do it for this week's podcast. Thank you, Dr. Doug Sammons, for coming by and doing the interview. If you are one of those people that might find what Doug says interesting, then I hope you will go to his Twitter feed. Hopefully, you have not been banned. We still don't know why that was. I suspect there's some sort of mistake happening here, and we'll get it resolved. But if you are the type of person that enjoyed what Dr. Doug Sammons had to say, go check him out on Twitter. He is wilted weeds and uh he's an enjoyable guy he's kind of fun and watch out because i would hate to see you get blocked by doug i don't know what you guys are doing out there to get blocked but uh in any case we'll figure that out and when we do find out what happened i'll come back and tell you to close out know that i have an as the crow flies episode coming up here on friday i'm excited about this one i've got it nailed down to one of two topics it is either on the topic of friendship and how you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. Um, or I wanna talk about learning how to introduce yourself so that it's not so awkward. I, uh, I've been putting on some classes about this subject and I finally was able to describe that idea uh, that we call the skyhook in a way that I think is uh, interesting and something that could help you at all these upcoming things that are going to happen through Thanksgiving and Christmas. So we'll see which one of these two I put together. No matter what, I'll do them both at some point. I uh, love to hear your comments on Twitter. I am at Vance Crow. And if you know of any group that you think would love hearing one of my workshops about how to become a tangibly better communicator, want to invite me um, to give a speech about some of the things that we talk about either on the podcast or in my past, um, or just want to communicate, just let me know. You can find out more about my company at vancecrow.com. So without further ado, I'm going to jump off here, but we'll see you on Friday. at